I mean, yeah, as Ollie said, I've got a little bit of a cold this morning, so we're cross between Barry White and one of those dog squeaky toys, so, uh, so you can en- enjoy that. Um, so we're going to be continuing uh, our series on identity, uh, and we're going to be looking at arguably one of the most important uh, it's, I think it's been the most important sermon series that we've possibly ever done. It's allowed us to step back from uh, the cultural narratives and look instead at how we can base our identity on who God says that we are and what God says about us. And this morning, uh, I'm incredibly thankful and delighted uh, that we have our young people in the service with us this morning. Um, I think it's really important if you're here and you're one of our youth this morning that you know that this issue of identity is something which we, as adults in the church family, are are also wrestling with and working through. Some of us here have been Christians for decades, and this is still something which we're learning about. I think it's also important for you as the wider church family to, to know that the pressures which face young people in this area of identity at the moment, I think, are greater and more complex than they have, have been uh, in the rest of, of history. Following, young, uh, following Jesus as a young person in the 21st century in Scotland is extremely difficult. And so we just want to honor you as young people, as you're pursuing uh, your faith, your relationship with Jesus, despite the costs, which are extremely significant. I hope that by being in the service with us this morning, you'll know that we really value you. We want to honor you. We love you. um, And we just want to walk alongside you as you grow in your own faith. So this morning, we're going to be looking at what is really at the heart of our identity, the heart of the Christian gospel, the fact that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and then on the third day, rose again. That we worship a living God. By placing our faith in him, we too are made alive in Christ. And the main text for this morning is going to be 1 Corinthians 15. And the key identity truth is verse 22. And it says this, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. If you're taking notes this morning... Uh, then the take-home truth is this, that if you've chosen to put your faith in Jesus, then our identity is aligned with him as opposed to being aligned with the world. Our identity is that we're made alive in Christ. And that truth means that we have this hope within us that whilst our earthly bodies may fail, in the same way that Christ rose from the dead and went to be in the eternal presence of the Father, so will our bodies raise and we will be in the eternal presence of the Father. Our culture tells us we're constantly told and sold the message that in order to, be, to really live, that we need to do what feels good, feels right, feels fair to us. We live based on our emotions. And our key text this morning tells us that if we align our identity with this, then it leads to death. If we believe in Jesus, we believe that he was crucified for us, Uh, then our identity is aligned with Christ. Because of his resurrection, we'll be raised to life. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope in which our identity is built upon. If we can begin to comprehend this eternal reality, then how we live in this age could be radically changed. 
I want to take just a moment as we start our time together this morning uh, and we talk about the resurrection, what it means for us to follow Christ. That it's possible that uh, as we talk about this, it, it might bring up some of the pain, some of the losses in our own lives. I was really aware that as I prepared my talk this week, I had moments where I was both filled with great joy and great hope um, that one day I'll get to see my dad again. But I also had moments where the loss um, of not being able to see my dad at the moment uh, weighed really heavy and so I had to pause. So I just want to give that little, little bit as we start our time together this morning. If there's any point um, this morning as we're going through this topic where you feel that you might just need to step out for a few moments, then I just want to give you permission um, to do that. Don't feel, um, don't feel bad about having to do that. Uh, we've got an amazing pastoral team. I've let them know um, what we're going to be talking on this morning. So if someone follows you out, it's probably one of those just checking if you're okay. Christians and theologians have for centuries wrangled over how to answer the question, what is the Christian gospel? And pretty much all of them agree that 1 Corinthians 15 is right at the very center of it. Paul talks about the gospel all of the time. He describes it and he explains it in a whole variety of different ways. But nowhere does he explain it and put it in such an official way. He says, what I'm about to outline in the next couple of sentences is the gospel that I preached to you, the one which I originally preached to you, the one which you accepted, and it is the gospel which saves so turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 8. It says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born." So the Christian gospel, in a nutshell, is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to many. It's quite possibly the most important sentence ever written down. And it's of the utmost importance to our identity. Jesus Christ died for your sins. All the things that you said, done, thought, which of course hurt and pain. And to you and to other people, it's caused this separation between yourself and God. On the cross, Jesus took your place. He died, he was buried, and he rose to life three days later in order that we might have this relationship with the Father. Jesus is the Christos, he's the Christ, the Messiah, the King. Andrew Wilson, the theologian and teaching associate at King's Church, in London says that this is massively important theologically because it describes in a substantiary, uh, substitutionary and biblical way how Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that lays then the foundation for all of the subsequent atonement theology. That's just the theological term for describing how Jesus has reconciled man and God. 
It also includes within it the fact that Jesus was buried, which might seem of little importance until you think of all the various different arguments that have come about over the years of how Jesus didn't really die. Maybe he just swooned despite being stabbed through the heart. Um, And how the fact that Jesus was not dead, but then Jesus was buried. Jesus was not only died for our sins, but he was buried. It goes on to describe how Jesus then appeared to many different people after the resurrection. And that's got a huge historical implication. The earliest copies of this letter that we're reading today date back to around 50 AD. And the way that they're written, the formation of the wording, it indicates that they've been recorded and written down from oral tradition, dating back much earlier. And that means that we can say with a large degree of confidence that this letter was originally sent to the church of Corinth. Many of the witnesses of Christ's resurrection were still alive. Paul tells us that in verse 6. Most of whom are still living. And the fact that these witnesses were still alive makes it highly unlikely that these accounts would be made up. Therefore, there's significant historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to look a bit more into that later on. But why does this matter to the people of Corinth? Why does it matter to us today? Well, 1 Corinthians is a letter to the church in Corinth. It's split up into five different sections. And usually Paul starts those sections by saying what the issue is. And then he goes on to explain it and confront it. He usually says something like, oh, I hear there are some divisions among you. Or uh, now about food and idols uh, from idols. Uh, He's covered divisions in the church, he's covered sexual morality, he's covered eating food which is sacrificed to idols, and he's covered church gatherings and how they should function. But we don't get that in this final section about the resurrection. Uh, We have to wait until uh, verse 12 when Paul says this. He says, but if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we're then found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Wow, some pretty intense words from Paul. This section is all about the resurrection of his Christ and its fundamental importance to our current and our future hope. You see, there's some believers in the church within Corinth who've decided that they're happy to accept that Jesus died, was buried and rose again. But the thought of believers being raised and that by that we're not talking about sort of the immortality of the soul which was widely accepted within the classical world. No, we're talking about the promise that our physical bodies will be raised, be made indestructible, eternal and in the presence of the Father. This was a step too far for some of the believers in Corinth. They say it's embarrassing, it's implausible. It's difficult to explain that to people around us. So we're just going to drop it. And I do wonder if there's some Christians within our, our current culture who, fight, who might find and might be able to relate to that feeling amongst the Corinthian congregation. And Paul's reaction is that he's horrified. 
He says, if you lose the resurrection of the believers, you lose the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ is right at the very center of the gospel. If Christ is dead, everything Paul has ever preached, the faith of the Corinthians, our faith today is entirely pointless. We might as well pack up and go home. Unless Jesus rose from the dead, there's no Christianity. The implications are enormous. If believers are not raised from the dead, Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. It means our sins have not been forgiven and that those who have died in the faith are gone forever. And therefore Christians are some of the most pathetic people on the planet. The situation which Paul is addressing in the Corinthian church could not be more serious, could not be more important. The stakes are stacked sky high and they remain high for us today. If Jesus is still dead, everything we've looked at regarding our identity in Christ doesn't exist. We're all lost still. We're hopeless. Everything we've built our lives on is a sham. And we're to be pitied amongst other people on earth. Because everything hinges on whether or not Christ came out of the tomb. And if he didn't, we should just stop now. Thankfully, Paul gives us verse 20. Because I don't know about you, but things are getting pretty intense. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. That is good news. In a culture which is increasingly skeptical and hostile towards religion and faith, particularly to Christianity, it's crucial that we as believers are solid and secure in our faith and belief that Christ rose from the dead in the resurrection. And I think it's really important that we have a good knowledge and understanding surrounding the evidence for the resurrection of Christ in order that we can then share that with our friends and with our family. So the first thing that we need to be clear about is that science here is not going to help us. There's an assumption in our culture today that to prove something to be true we have to use science. We're following the science was a, a phrase which was commonly heard over the past couple of years. Now, there are some parts of science which can really help us. But in terms of it bringing a definitive answer to, did Jesus rise from the dead? It just can't do that. Last week, we went down as a family to, to visit Jorvik Viking Center in York. It's a museum dedicated to the Viking settlers who lived on that site uh, where the museum is. Uh, there's no doubt that the Vikings existed. We know what they ate, we know what their homes looked like, we know what their toilets looked like, which our girls found amazing. Um, and we know how they dressed, the games they played. Nobody questions whether the Vikings exist, uh, existed, but you can't prove that they existed just using uh, science. We've got to use historical and some physical evidence aided by the scientific process and piece together what the most likely conclusion is based on all those various different pieces of evidence. So proving that Jesus lived, died, buried, and then rose again is in many ways we're going to follow a similar process. So what evidence do we have? Well, the main evidence for the resurrection of Jesus comes in the form of 17 documents written by different people and date back to the first century. And they refer to the resurrection of Jesus. And if you want to go and have a look at those documents, then they're displayed in various lovely glass cabinets in different parts of the world, some in Dublin, some London, Oxford, and various other places around the world. And the earliest text that we have 
is actually the passage that we're studying this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, written by a Jewish tent maker, Paul. It's been dated back to AD 55, which is just 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. There's other examples from Scripture which outline the resurrection of Jesus, and they're all what we call positive examples. That is that they describe the resurrection of Jesus. They say that Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead, rise from the dead. What's interesting is that there's no negative text about this claim. We haven't got a document or any documents which say all these people claim that Jesus rose from the dead, but in actual fact, we've managed to disprove that theory because we've actually found Jesus' body. There's none of those. We only have these positive texts. They're written by different people, different times, different parts, right across the ancient world. And we know that the Eastern Mediterranean, their people and societies accepted this as truth. They accepted the resurrection narrative as historical fact to the point where they reshaped their societies, their communities, their lives around that truth. Large numbers of people then and today sacrifice possession, families, and their very lives based on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And that that is true. When all the written historical evidence that we have from the first century points to a man called Jesus being executed by the Romans, buried and then raising from the dead, we have to take that seriously and work out an explanation. We're only really left with two possible and plausible uh, explanations, what happened on that first Easter Sunday. And these are two, uh, the two most uh, generally accepted in society. So view number one is that nothing happened. There are many people who believe that Jesus of Nazareth did not exist. And this is really odd given the amazing amount of evidence that he did both in scripture and other historical external documents. In fact, most uh, scholars and historians, those who are Christian and those who are not, actually, um, they don't even give that, um, that thought a response. They would say it's almost like someone saying that the center of the earth is made actually of red chocolate. It's completely, almost improbable and so it's not really worthy of a response. It flies in the face of the incredible amount of evidence that's there. The other, there's another group of people who say that actually there was a group of friends, so Jesus lived, he died, there's a group of friends who mourned him for a bit and then life moved on. And often they'll cite the argument that the 17 documents that we've got are biased because they're written by Christians. And therefore, we should invalidate them. Well, when being the definition of being a Christian is that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it's a little bit of a heads, I win, tails, you lose sort of an argument, I think. View number two, though, is that the tomb of Jesus was empty. And Jesus then appeared to a number of different people over the course of the next few weeks. They believed, these people believed that they were in the presence of the risen Jesus. And these encounters are so numerous that we can't just simply discount them. The earliest copy, like we've said, dates back to just 25 years after. And there were three truths within it which we can say with a large degree of confidence were accepted at the time. 
that Jesus' resurrection was a fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, that his resurrection was witnessed by several leading men in the Christian movement, and his resurrection resulted in a personal hope for his followers. I wonder, the idea of talking about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus may seem a little bit of an odd concept in our culture, which tends to operate more on opinion rather than fact. Many people will place the statement that Jesus rose from the dead into a box marked religious statements as opposed to historical fact. And I think that most people have made their mind up about the resurrection of Jesus without ever taking the time to consider it to be a historical event. They assume that no person, no thinking person, would ever take the time to consider the evidence. Therefore, they're not going to waste any time on it either. But there is evidence. And it shows that what happened on that day sparked off a movement of people, numbering up to a billion people. And it's impacted and changed individuals' lives. It's changed nations. It's changed cultures. It's changed societies for over 20 centuries. But in spite of this, many people have not given the resurrection of Jesus a second thought, filing it under personal religious experience. All the evidence points towards Jesus' body not being in the tomb. Therefore, we're left with a choice. Either Jesus rose from the dead, or no matter what the evidence shows, you can't talk about supernatural events when discussing history. So there's got to be an alternative explanation which is as yet unknown. The great N.T. Wright has written a huge book on this topic, which I confess to not having read all of. Um, but I have found a wonderful quote from it, which I think is helpful. It says this, Historical argument alone cannot force anyone to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. But historical argument is remarkably good at clearing away the undergrowth behind which skepticisms of various sorts have been hiding. The proposal that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead possesses unrivaled power to explain the historical data at the heart of Christianity. I think it's important in a world which is entangled and overgrown with skepticism, with doubt, that we have confidence in the historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul tells us emphatically that the resurrection is the source of our hope. It's the way that we inherit our new identity. Think back a few weeks when I talked about how we're adopted in Christ. Our legal status is that through Christ's death and resurrection, we are transformed. We're moved from slaves to sons. If we're to- not totally and utterly convinced that Jesus died and rose again, then all we believe is for nothing. If, however, we have faith in this historical reality, it changes everything. Our identity is entirely changed. We move from death into life. The verses which follow that declaration of verse 20 describe why this reality has been and continues to be the source of Christian hope, comfort, and reassurance. Verse 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For since death came through man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the firstfruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Christ has been raised up from the dead. He is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. This great assurance, uh, there's a great assurance which comes from this phrase, the first fruits, that Christ is the first fruits. You see, a farmer would look out uh, at the first um, parts of his crop, the first fruits from his crop to be ripe. When they were ready to pick, he would gather them up and they would be given as an offering to the Lord. These initial fruits were of high importance because it gave the promise to the farmer that the rest of the crop was on its way. Think about that first daffodil that you see in springtime when it pops out of the ground. There's an assurance that comes, an expectation and an excitement that when you go out in a few weeks' time, that whole bank is going to be filled with flowers. Christ is the first fruits. He's the guarantee that all who've fallen asleep in faith will rise too. And because Jesus has risen, you can know for certain that his people will rise also when the time has come. Our key verse today was verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ we will be made alive. You see, humanity is tied to a central head. Either we're connected to Adam through our shared humanity or we're connected to Christ through our faith in him. If we remain connected to Adam, with the, to the world, our continuous search for significance and acceptance, living for self, then we're dead. There is no hope. There is no future. If we're in Christ, that is that we've accepted by faith that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again. And he appeared to many. Then we are made alive in him. There is hope. There is a future. There is a certainty that just as Christ rose from the dead and went to be with the Father, then so will we. For Christ has risen. And then when he returns, so will we also rise. The resurrection of Jesus is at the very center of our identity because it's in him that we're made alive. Our identity is no longer tied to the pattern of this world. All the pain, the heartache, the sorrow that we experience now, whilst it brings us to our knees in grief, it is but for a moment because we live in this now and not yet. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits. It's the guarantee that when we place our faith and trust in him, we will rise also. One day our bodies will be raised from the grave, made perfect and whole, and spend eternity in the presence of the Father. This is the eternal hope of every Christian, and it allows us to endure this life, knowing with certainty that we've been made alive in Christ. It's the heart of the Christian gospel. Perhaps this morning is the first time that you've heard that. Or perhaps you've walked away from that. Well, this morning there's an opportunity to receive Jesus as your Savior. To step into a new identity as one who is alive in Christ. To move from death into life. 
We're going to have some prayer ministry a bit later on. And then I'm going to ask that um, if you could come. If you want to pray and receive Jesus as your Savior this morning, then we've got a prayer ministry team who would love to pray with you as we do that. But I also mentioned at the start that talking about the resurrection, the fact that we'll be raised in Christ, it can bring up grief for us about those who are no longer with us. Like I say, I found writing parts of this talk really difficult. And so if this morning when we move into prayer ministry time, you'd like someone to stand with you, to pray a blessing, to pray peace over you, then this morning this is a safe place for you to come and receive. And what I mean by that phrase, this is a safe place, is that no one's going to make you feel embarrassed if you cry. If you need to weep in this place this morning, we just want to stand with you. Our core value here at Samongo's is family. And that means standing alongside our brothers and sisters in our continual journey of grief. So worship team, I'm going to ask if you might come up. I'm going to pray. We thank you, Father, for the cross. And this morning we declare that we believe that you died for our sins. That you were buried. On the third day you rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And you appeared to many. We thank you that in doing this, you've made a way that we can step into a new identity. That we can move from death into life. We thank you that we're made alive in you. We thank you for that assurance that because you were raised, that we too will be raised and step into the eternal presence of the Father. We look forward to the coming of your kingdom. Would your kingdom come? We ask that you continue to reveal more to us about who you've created us to be. That you'd seal in that truth about our identity, which is not found in this world, but is found in you. Come, Holy Spirit, and breathe a new life into each one of us.